Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 3. Uh, if you came in late, I'll mention it one more time. Uh, I'm asking everyone to please read next week, sometime during the week, 1 Samuel 4 through 7, because I'm going to try to preach that whole story in one sermon next week, and it would be good for you to be familiar with that ahead of time, since we'll move a little quickly through some of the text. Uh, so if you'll mark that down. But today we're in chapter 3. Last week we observed the contrast between Eli's family, Phineas and Hophni, and Elkanah's family. He was married to Hannah, and his son was Samuel. Both men, interestingly, had sons living and serving within the walls of the temple at Shiloh. Eli's sons, Phineas and Hophni, were characterized by lust and corruption. They were takers. Eli is characterized as weak and spineless, and he honored his sons rather than Yahweh. So that's Eli's family. On the other side, we have Elkanah's family. His son is named Samuel. Samuel is ministering and growing in God's presence. Elkanah Hannah and Samuel are all characterized by faithfulness and generosity, and as much as Phineas and Hophni are takers, Elkanah and his family are givers. And if you remember, according to our verse for the year that I've been mentioning, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the people of God are those who no longer live for themselves. Paul says we are controlled by the love of Christ, having concluded that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died so that they would no longer live for themselves, but would live for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. So the, the most simple difference between a follower of Christ, a person of God, and, and a person who has not embraced Christ is that those who follow Christ are givers. And prior to that, we are all takers. So in chapter 2, if you remember, the author carefully drops five little comments about Samuel into the narrative about the wickedness of Phineas and Hophni. So you can, you can just back up a little bit, or I'll just read them to you. Verse 11, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 21, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. I think Samuel is one of those guys who has a boring testimony, if you know what I mean. He never rebelled. Perhaps like some of you, Samuel was the kind of guy he doesn't remember not knowing about Jesus. He doesn't remember not having faith in Christ. And I think we do undervalue a life of faithfulness that starts in childhood. And I am praying that our children, as many of them as possible, will have boring testimonies by the Lord's standards. And I'm not taking anything away from what the grace of God, that, that God can do in the life of an adult reprobate. But salvation is spectacular. And it is just as spectacular in a 50-year-old in a jail cell as it is for a 5-year-old in a kindergarten class. And it's simply not true that teenagers need to experience, I'm kind of enjoying that, is it too loud? It's not true that teenagers have to experience rebellion 
in order to understand the grace of God. A child can recognize that she is a sinner and that she needs God's grace and she can live a life praising God for salvation even if she's never rebelled against him. So chapter 3 then, to bring us to our chapter this morning, opens with one more statement about the childhood of Samuel. Just so you know what he's doing in the midst of all the wickedness. Chapter 3, verse 1, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. All right, I think, I love this chapter. Many of you are probably familiar with this chapter. Uh, Let me read the whole chapter to you this morning uh, as we get started. And just just look at the faithfulness of God, and uh, particularly to Samuel throughout this passage, and then we'll talk about some of the things in it. Verse 1, now the boy was ministering, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There were no frequent visions. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called Samuel again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling at other, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am going to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sins were blaspheming, his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. All right. I know that uh, some of you probably, like me, have at one time or another participated in the British soap opera that is Downton Abbey. Uh, It's interesting. I'm a bit of an Anglophile. I like things to do with England. 
Uh, it explores the events in England, sort of beginning at the Titanic, the time of the Titanic, and, and moving forward in the series. One of the most interesting elements to observe about the show for me was to see the changes that were taking place, uh, especially within the aristocracy and within the social order during that time. And so the show is very beautifully uh, shot, and it's got beautiful costumes. But the writing wasn't exactly always Shakespearean. And so towards the end of the show, the writers are so desperate to communicate that the times are changing, the times they are are changing, that it's like over and over again, characters are constantly saying, you know, the times they are are changing, the times they are are changing. And it was hard to miss the point that the writers were trying to make. The author of Samuel isn't that bad, but he's not being very subtle either because that darkness that we've seen that has been the time of the judges, that has been associated with Eli and with his sons, that is coming to an end. And there's this spark of light, and his name is Samuel, and he's ministering there in the temple. Now, from what we just read, you don't have to be an English teacher to recognize that these verses are dripping with symbolism. Because you hear words like vision, dim eyesight, the lamp of God. And all of these words the author is using to point out for us what exactly it is that's going on here. Okay, so first of all, we see the spiritual and physical blindness. All right, so let's talk about the physical blindness first. Eli's eyesight has grown dim. He's actually losing his eyesight. But this is also evidence, I think, that his spiritual sight has become dull as well. So consider this. We saw two weeks ago Hannah pouring out her heart because of her infertility in the temple, and Eli thinks she's drunk. His sons have engaged in great wickedness in full view of the world. Everybody knows what they're doing, but Eli seems to have, for the most part, turned a blind eye. And even in our passage this morning, it takes Samuel coming to him three times before Eli realizes that it's God who's calling to him. Eli simply can't see. He is struggling to see the world around him, but he is also struggling to see the effects of the wickedness of his sons. He can't recognize the needs of his people under his care. He can't see the work that he ought to be doing. His dull spiritual leadership has led to dull people in the society. And remember, and this is so clear as you read through the pages of Judges leading into this, they are one generation removed from the nation that took Canaan. The walls falling down, all the things that God did, one generation before had seen this, and now this generation is spiritually dull to those things. It just doesn't take long. All right, so that physical blindness then, I believe, points us to this spiritual blindness that's going on because it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Literally, the word was precious. God is not speaking. Hearts are not hungering for his word. Senses have become dull to God's word. What happens when people lose contact with God's word? Very simply, people don't know how to live. That's all of us. All human beings, without God's word, we don't know how to live without revelation. We can't live at peace with God. We can't live at peace with each other. And we can't live at peace with ourselves. If God's word becomes rare in our families, in our churches, and in our nation, 
the society will break down. Go sometime, not while you're reading 1 Samuel 4 through 7, but go and read the last four chapters of Judges sometimes and just, just consider that is the world that Samuel is growing up in. That is the world in which God's word has become rare. And we saw last week, there are times, and I think this is so hard for us, but to think that there are times when God in his sovereignty would actually withdraw the word of God, either the, the voice of God, or in our case, just the, the dullness that people have to the scripture. He withdraws that understanding and the words themselves, nobody listens to, nobody understands. This is in, in Amos chapter eight at a future time. The prophet Amos predicts a time, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. It's hard for us to think that God would do that sometimes. God says to the prophet Isaiah, the famous passage when Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple and God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, I will go, send me. And then God says, okay, I'm going to send you with a message, but nobody's going to understand. You're going to have a whole ministry and nobody's going to respond. And then interestingly, interestingly Jesus, when he starts to tell the par parables after the time when the Pharisees have rejected him, Jesus actually says regarding the parables, he says, I'm going to start to speak in a way so that those who don't understand won't understand, and those who do understand will understand. And he quotes that passage from Isaiah. To the faithful, the thought of not having God's word should be terrifying. It should be terrifying to us. Probably one of the most overused and misused passages in the Bible is Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. You may have heard, without vision, the people perish. This is not a Bible verse about good managerial principles. And it does not mean that the church needs to hire good, creative, resourceful planners so that we can survive. Good uh, vision casting doesn't keep people from perishing, all right? What this verse means is the lack of God's word causes people to die. People fall apart without God's word to direct them. It's very simple. So we need God's word like we need food and water. It is essential to our existence. Without it, we are lost and blind. Deuteronomy, which Jesus quotes at the temptation, says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God's grace comes through God's word to God's people. So if you don't have God's word, you are starving and you are blind. And if you don't want to hear God's word, if you don't want to receive God's word, if you're not interested in God's word, I would encourage you this morning, be concerned about the health of your soul because you are a starving person and you don't know it. But you can always ask God to give you a hunger for his word. God tells us in James that if you ask for wisdom, he longs to give you what you have asked for. And there could be nothing wiser than to ask for a hunger of God's, for God's word. So if you're sitting here this morning and that resonates true for you and you're like, you know what? 
I don't like God's word, and that concerns me. Ask him. Ask him for that hunger, and I believe he will answer that prayer. Secondly, so we see on the one hand spiritual blindness, physical blindness. Secondly, we see the dawning of the light in God's presence. It says the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Y'all, this is such a beautiful section of scripture. I've enjoyed this so much this week. All is not lost. God is moving through that little boy who's asleep in the tabernacle. Okay, let me just clear something up here. So we think of the tabernacle as a tent, right, that they built in the, in the wilderness and they carried it around. Now it is located at Shiloh. In this passage, it kind of alternates between tabernacle and temple, and it talks about doors. So here, this is just, just for free. Here's what I think is going on here. This is as best as I can understand. Uh, they, must have, they must have put the tabernacle at Shiloh, but they must have put some kind of structure around it. All right. So even though they're not having the temple that is one day going to be in Jerusalem, they've clearly built some kind of real structure. So don't get distracted when you're like, why are they talking about doors and, you know, and, and it's a tent? Okay, I think that's what's going on there. All right, so we'll, we'll just leave that there. All right, so there's two important things then that we need to understand here. Number one, the light of the Lord has not gone out. And I think that's literal, but I think it's also symbolic. It's saying the light of the Lord hasn't gone out because Samuel is sleeping next to the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And then it also says here that Samuel was lying in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. All right? Now, I've wrestled with this this week because I just finished reading Numbers. I just finished reading about all of the threats that you get if you see the Ark of the Covenant, right? And like all of the Kohathites, who are the Levites, who are supposed to be taking care of that thing, it actually says... It's a lot of porpoise skin. I don't know where they were getting all this porpoise skin, if you've ever read through that, that section. But it actually says you take the little covering of porpoise skin and you pull that over the Ark of the Covenant because you have to be very careful not to look at the Ark of the Covenant because if you look at the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to die. But here Samuel is, as near as I can tell, sleeping in the temple where the Ark was. So what's going on here? Here's what I think. I think I've read it. I, so, you know, again, first of the year, I'm, ha I'm hanging out, beginning of the Bible. But there's once in Exodus and there's once in Leviticus where Moses speaks to the Lord and it says the Lord spoke to him from between the cherubim in the mercy seat, which is the Ark of the Covenant, Numbers 789. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spoke to him. So clearly there have been at least two men who had uncommon access to God at the ark of the covenant, Moses and Samuel. And I, here's what I think. I think Moses and Samuel are examples of men in scripture who had a very unique role to play among God's people, Moses is starting up the nation. Samuel is starting up this prophetic office. He's appointing kings. And men who have been given unique roles to play within God's economy are given unique access to God. Think about Paul and the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul goes to the third heaven to see things 
that he can't describe because he has a job to do. Therefore, I think that Samuel was literally sleeping next to the Ark of the Covenant. That's what I've come to decide. All right, one more observation, and then we'll move on. Where do we find God's revelation? Where do we hear God's word? Where can we go and have our spiritual eyesight restored? We go into the presence of God. That's where we have our, our sight restored. Samuel is dwelling in the presence of God. Unlike everybody else in this story so far, Samuel is growing in his relationship with God. James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Psalm 16.11 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Where do we encounter the truth of God? Where do we have our vision restored? When we are in the presence of God. And we have all been invited into the presence of God through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shed blood. So you are all welcome there. All of us are welcome to come into the presence of the Lord, to hear from him through his word, to speak to him, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. That's the promise. You can believe that. And please remember one more thing. Samuel is a boy. He is under the age of 13. And God is going to use him to do great things. All right. Beginning in verse 2, we start to see the call of Samuel. Remember what I told you last week? If God repeats something over and over again, if, if the author repeats something over and over again, it's important. The Hebrew word for call appears 11 times in this passage. What do you think this passage is about? It's about the call of Samuel. All right, that's, that's what we're looking at here. And so here's what we have. We have God calling Samuel. We have Samuel believing that Eli is calling him. And we have Eli confused because he did not call Samuel. So we're just going to walk through what's happening here from those, from those three individuals' perspective. Eli, Samuel, and the Lord. First of all, Eli is slow to understand. All right? I don't need to beat him up anymore. We know that Eli is losing his eyesight. Three times, Samuel comes in and says, what do you want? And Eli says, I'm not calling you. We've already seen that the word of the Lord is rare in those days. So Eli isn't expecting God to speak, and so he's slow in recognizing it. I've been hanging out now. You know, we've been with Eli for three weeks, three chapters. We'll leave him for good next week in chapter four. I don't believe that Eli is all bad. He's weak. His spiritual eyes are dim, but he's not totally blind. He loves Samuel. He refers to him as his son in this passage. And I actually think that he should deserve some credit for how he responds to Samuel in this passage, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So that's Eli. Eli is slow to understand, but Samuel is learning to understand. Samuel is learning to hear God. And probably the key verse in this whole chapter is verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So this is very interesting. Samuel, up till now, he's been living near God. He's been living around the things of God, but he hasn't really known God. He had never heard God's voice. He'd never had direct interaction with him, but that is changing. And so what we have here, and this is very important uh, in the nation of Israel, but we have God sort of inaugurating. This is the first time we've seen this office of prophet. All right, This is a very important role. Samuel is going to be sort of the guy out in front. There are 
three positions of leadership that you see throughout the Old Testament, right? Prophet, priest, and king. And they all have three very different roles to play. So the priest, of course, is responsible for access to God. He's the one that mediates the relationship of the people to God. That's what the priest does. The king rules over the people, all right? And in, in Israel's case, he, the king is the representative of God who is the true king. And then we have the prophet who speaks for God, who speaks on behalf of God, especially to the king and then sometimes to the people. And there's some overlap in these positions, like some priests are prophets, but generally it's very important that these three positions remain separate. And we'll see in a few chapters, Saul gets in big, big trouble because he, as king, tries to offer sacrifices. So the king is not supposed to become the priest. Samuel is going to be the first prophet. He is going to be the spokesman for God. And remember, to be a prophet doesn't just mean that you tell the future. All right, That wasn't the only thing that prophets did. They did some of that. But mainly, their ministry was to bring the word of God to the king especially, and also to the people. And often that message was about coming judgment. Now, all three of those roles will come together in one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is our priest because he is like us in every way, and yet he has not sinned. He's the only human being who has ever uh, lived who could fulfill all three of those roles, okay? So that's what Samuel is doing. Samuel is being called to be a prophet. Finally, Yahweh is patient with his children. We see God's patience with Samuel. Samuel's doing the best he can. He's acting on what he knows of God so far, and God is not impatient with him. And I think that's important. It takes God four times to get Samuel to pay attention. All right? So last week we saw that Eli was held accountable for not restraining Phineas and Hophni, right? That, that God came and kind of lowered the boom. Eli knows everything that's going on, and God says, you haven't restrained your boys, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. So we have to teach our children to obey, all right? But this thing, this week, I want you to notice one other facet of God's fatherhood. And y'all, I, I have learned in, in my in my parenting thus far that one of the best ways to know how I can be a father is is to notice how God my father is father to me there's a lot of rich things to be learned there so let's just let's just look at how God the father interacts with Samuel God does not say Samuel I called you four times all right And it is very important that we teach our children. I want my children to learn to listen to my voice. If one of my boys is running out into the street, or my girl, uh, but especially if one of the boys is running out into the street, and I want to be able to say, hey, stop, and I want them to listen. I want them to hear my voice, and I want them to respond with obedience and respect. On the other hand, both in Scripture and in my own experience, I often see God being so patient with me. So should I always discipline my children the moment they don't respond when I speak? Does God treat me like that? 
every single time. Certainly, should, I should aspire to obey him. Certainly, I, I should aspire to respond to the things he says. But I often fall short of that goal. So clearly, Yahweh is willing to give Samuel time to learn and grow and understand. He's willing to let him listen and learn how to respond. You're going to hear this name, Dale Ralph Davis, a lot over the next few weeks as we go through this book because it's a great commentary and Matt, are, Matt and I are both using it. Davis says this, here with Samuel, we have a true glimpse of Yahweh. He is willing to give us time to understand him. He is not holding a stopwatch over Samuel. No, Yahweh moderates his instruction to our condition. So does Jesus when he says, I have many things to say to you, but you are not able to bear them now. John 16, 12. Think about this, y'all, because I, I'm, I'm assuming this is true of you because I know it's true of me. What if God had told you everything you were going to face up till now when you first decided to follow Jesus? I would have despaired. I would have been overwhelmed. I would have been overwhelmed about all the things that I had to learn and about all the things that I was going to be asked to do. The only command, the only outright command that God gives to fathers in the New Testament is do not exasperate your children. It is exasperating of us to expect more of our children than they are able to give. And God, our Father, doesn't do that to us. So we teach them to obey the Lord and, and us because it is a protection for our souls, which we talked about last week, but we do it with love and gentleness and patience so that they can learn to love righteousness and not resent it. So here's the point. This is all I want to say, and then we'll move on. If your ideal model of parenting is an impatient drill sergeant, then you might want to give this thought a little, this point a little bit of thought. Because God is patiently calling Samuel. Samuel is not coddling sin. Samuel is not off the reservation, as it were. Samuel is near to God. And so God is patient as Samuel learns to hear from him. And so if we are seeking God and living near to him, he will be very patient with us as we learn to understand his ways. But we should not expect that same patience if we're flirting with sin and rebellion. And that's not where Samuel is. All right, so number three, there is a difficult cross. We had a funny talk about this uh, the other day. I have number three. I have no idea why that's number three. I know I'm a terrible outline giver. Like I just thought, I don't know what number one and two are. Uh, but I have written down here as number three. So I can't even like go back and tell you number one, number two. But for our purposes, number three. If you're taking notes, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> Samuel has a difficult cross to bear. And we see this as verses 10 through 18. So the fact that God is patient with Samuel, it doesn't mean that the things he has to say to him are, are easy. And so, again, be reminded here, Samuel is a child. God's messenger is a little boy, and God's going to give him a message that says, that sets his ears tingling, all right? So it's a wonderful thing to hear the word of God. Hear me. I believe that. I love that. It is life-giving. It is like water to a thirsty soul. But not everything we hear is always going to be easy. And if you have walked with God for any period of time, you are going to know that when you draw near to him and he reveals things to you, it is going to fight against your sensibilities. Samuel's first revelation of hearing God 
is terribly distressing. So we're not going to linger over this. We've heard the message before, but it's basically this. God's going to bring judgment on Eli's house. He has not restrained his sons. They've treated God with contempt. Therefore, their sin has rendered them, the text says, beyond sacrifice and atonement. But once again, check out the symbolism. Love the symbolism here. With the coming of the dawn, Samuel opens the doors to the house of the Lord. So the light of day is breaking in. The doorway of the temple is being opened. Samuel's first message may be a very difficult one, but it is the beginning of God's light flowing into the temple. The text says here that Samuel lay down till morning. It does not say he slept. He knows that he's got a message to pass on to Eli. And Eli knows that God was calling him in the night. And so Eli gets up and he says to Samuel, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. The text says Samuel was afraid to tell Eli. To come close to God, to come near to God, right? Sounds good. We all aspire to it, I hope. But to come close to God is to come close to someone who is very different than we are. And when we say we are willing to serve Christ, we do not understand everything that that entails. And so as I look back as my life, as a follower of Jesus, and I have gone down that path, I would have never drawn up the path that God has taken me to get to this point. And as we said earlier, we would be overwhelmed if we knew all of that from the beginning. So here's the point, y'all. God's word is filled with comfort, and it's filled with encouragement, but it's also filled with words of judgment and conviction. And so our lives are filled with blessing, but we are also promised trials. And we don't get to pick and choose. And as a faithful servant of the Lord, this is me as your pastor who brings the word to you, but this is also you as a faithful servant of the Lord. Sometimes we get to speak words of comfort, but sometimes we have to speak words that convict. Davis again says, if one has high regard both for the truth of God, even if it's judgment, and for the troubles of the church, he will retain the proper tension in the biblical word. He will both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I was just even convicted this week as I was studying this in terms of my own willingness to evangelize because I have a message. We all have a message for the lost, but it's a hard message. It's a difficult message that does involve speaking to them about the judgment of God. We know we have a remedy for their situation that is the cross of Christ, but am I willing to speak that hard word to them that leads to life? And let me say this too. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. Difficult words should never be delivered with glee. Samuel was afraid to tell Eli, and that's okay. The best counselors, I would contend, bear bad news with fear and trepidation. So as a pastor... If I have to deliver a hard message to somebody, I hope they respond like Eli. Because Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. How do you respond to God's word? If you understand God's holiness in our hearts, then you have to understand that there are going to be things that you hear from God's word that are going to disturb you. They're going to seem wrong to you. They're going to seem different than your sensibilities. 
And in those cases, you need to be able to say, it is the Lord's. Let him do as he wills. Finally, the delightful consequences of Samuel's ministry. Let me just read this last paragraph to you. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I think a good summary of chapters 2 and 3 in 1 Samuel is simply the Lord was with Samuel. He was working in him from an early age. It says, no words that Samuel spoke fell to the ground. He is a true prophet of God, and we know that because the things that he said were true and authoritative, and God was faithful to those things. Also, Samuel was given a national ministry. Okay, so remember what we said last week. All the judges up until that point had been little regional judges. Samuel from Dan in the north till Beersheba in the south. All of Israel, Samuel has a a leadership position as prophet that is over all of Israel. And y'all, that little boy and his difficult word that he had to pass on to Eli, you know, if you know the story of Samuel, this is not the last bad news that Samuel is going to have to deliver in his life. Because we're going to see in a few weeks that he has to go to Saul and he has to say, the Lord hasn't just removed your priesthood from you, the Lord has actually removed the kingship for you. So Samuel is going to get used to delivering hard messages. I'm not going to spend a ton of time with application from this passage this morning. Because of this, I believe sometimes we can let God's word speak for itself. And here's the good news, y'all. And I think you understand this, but just to be clear, I am not a priest. I am a pastor. I do not mediate between God and you. Jesus Christ does that. And you have the same Holy Spirit that I have. Ultimately, I help explain the scripture to you, but you have the Holy Spirit in your heart applying the scripture. And I think too often these days, pastors give the impression that you need to come to me to understand. All right? So I would guess that all of you who are Christians in this room so far today have heard things that I've said that the Holy Spirit has applied to your heart that I wouldn't even think of saying, okay? So let me just leave you with this. We're talking about God's word. We're talking about the revelation of God. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Those who ignore it are like blind people living in the darkness. The single greatest revelation, I'll give that a second. All right, I want you to hear this, okay? Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. The single greatest revelation of God's word is Jesus Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Samuel and the prophets did their job speaking God's word. But ultimately, the greatest revelation that God has ever provided was in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we look to him and we learn that the words of the prophets 
couldn't hold a candle to the light of Jesus. So what kind of people ought we to be in light of this? And I just read Isaiah 66, 2 to you. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Samuel was sort of par excellence, the kind of man who was humble and contrite in spirit and who trembled at God's word. My prayer for hope is that we would be a people who live in God's presence and pay attention to his word and are humble and contrite in spirit, meaning we recognize our need, and then to tremble means that we recognize that we are in the presence of somebody very different than us who is speaking. All right? So as we turn to the table right now, as we turn to the Lord's table in just a moment, I would just encourage you to remember the one through whom God has revealed himself most fully, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we would invite everyone to join us in partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, unless you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would simply ask you to refrain. Though, like I said earlier, if you would like to hear more about that, uh, one of us would love to discuss that with you. Uh, the guys are going to come forward. They're going to hand out the bread and the cup. Take one of each and then hold on to that. I'm going to get up and I'll read a section of scripture in just a moment, and then we will take it together.
so many pictures uh, that the Bible provides us to help us understand darkness, light, blindness, sight. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He is the sustenance. He is what we need to live. And so we find that reflected here in this passage. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. For when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink the cup. You, as, do this in, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and eat. 